Chapters 19 and 20 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19 Battling in the Arena Slowly I regained my composure, and finally essayed again an attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer. But as I reached out into the darkness to locate it, I found to my horror that it was gone. Then the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair, as they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months, through all this awful eternity of my imprisonment to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days no food was brought me, but then a new messenger appeared and my incarceration went on as before, but not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim torchlight I saw that he was a red Martian and I could scarcely await the departure of his guards to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly the Martian word of greeting, Kaor. "'Who are you who speaks out of the darkness?' he answered. "'John Carter, a friend of the Red Men of Helium.' "'I am of Helium,' he said, "'but I do not recall your name.' And then I told him my story as I have written it here omitting only any reference to my love for Dejah Thoris. He was much excited by the news of Helium's princess, and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached a point of safety from where they left me. He said that he knew the place well, because the defile through which the Warhoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south. Dejah Thoris and Sola enter the hills not five miles from a great waterway, and are now probably quite safe, he assured me. My fellow prisoner was Kantos Khan, a Padwar, lieutenant, in the navy of Helium. He had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the Tharks at the time of Dejah Thoris' capture, and he briefly related the events which followed the defeat of the battleships. Badly injured, and only partially manned, they had limped slowly toward Helium, but while passing near the city of Zodanga, the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies among the Red Men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by a great body of war-vessels, and all but the craft to which Kantos Khan belonged were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three of the Zodangan warships, but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after the capture of Dejah Thoris, or about the time of our coming to Thark, his vessel had reached Helium, with about ten survivors of the original crew of seven hundred officers and men. Immediately seven great fleets, each of one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched to search for Dejah Thoris, and from these vessels Two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search for the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, 
but no trace of Dejah Thoris had been found. They had been searching among the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended their quest to the south. Kantos Khan had been detailed to one of the small one-man flyers, and had had the misfortune to be discovered by the Warhoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone he had landed at the city's boundary, and on foot had penetrated to the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights he had explored their quarters and their dungeons, in search of his beloved princess, only to fall into the hands of a party of Warhoons as he was about to leave, after assuring himself that Dejah Thoris was not a captive there. During the period of our incarceration Kantos Khan and I became well acquainted, and formed a warm personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however, before we were dragged forth from our dungeon for the great games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheatre, which, instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground, was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris, so that how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition it held the entire twenty thousand warhoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it the warhoons had piled building stone from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and the captives from escaping into the audience, and at each end had been constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were confined together in one of the cages. In the others were wild kalots, thoats, mad zitadars, green warriors and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of Barsoom which I had never before seen. The din of their roaring, growling, and squealing was deafening, and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest heart feel grave forebodings. Kantos Khan explained to me that at the end of the day one of these prisoners would gain freedom and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day would be pitted against each other until only two remained alive, the victor in the last encounter being set free, whether animal or man. The following morning the cages would be filled with a new consignment of victims, and so on throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged, the amphitheatre began to fill, and within an hour every available part of the seating space was occupied. Dakova, with his jeds and chieftains, sat at the centre of one side of the arena upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Dakova, the doors of two cages were thrown open, and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the centre of the arena. Each was given a dagger, and then, at the far end, a pack of twelve kalots, or wild dogs, were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenceless women, I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to the excellent quality of the sport, and when I turned back to the arena, as Kantos Khan told me it was over, 
I saw three victorious Kalots snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given a good account of themselves. Next a mad Zitidar was loosed among the remaining dogs, and so it went throughout the long, hot, horrible day. During the day I was pitted against first men and then beasts, but as I was armed with a longsword, and always outclassed my adversary in agility and generally in strength as well, it proved but child's play to me. Time and time again I won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude, and toward the end there were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally there were but three of us left, a great green warrior of some far northern horde, Kantos Khan, and myself. The other two were to battle and then I to fight the conqueror for the liberty which was accorded the final winner. Kantos Khan had fought several times during the day, and like myself had always proven victorious, but occasionally by the smallest of margins, especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best his giant adversary who had mowed down all before him during the day. The fellow towered nearly sixteen feet in height, while Kantos Khan was some inches under six feet. As they advanced to meet one another I saw for the first time a trick of Martian swordsmanship which centered Kantos Khan's every hope of victory and life on one cast of the dice. For as he came to within about twenty feet of the huge fellow he threw his sword-arm far behind him over his shoulder and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon point-foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow, and piercing the poor devil's heart laid him dead upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were now pitted against each other. But as we approached to the encounter I whispered to him to prolong the battle until nearly dark, in the hope that we might find some means of escape. The horde evidently guessed that we had no hearts to fight each other, and so they howled in rage as neither of us placed a fatal thrust. Just as I saw the sudden coming of dark, I whispered to Kantos Khan to thrust his sword between my left arm and my body. As he did so, I staggered back, clasping the sword tightly with my arm, and thus fell to the ground with his weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Kantos Khan perceived my coup, and stepping quickly to my side he placed his foot upon my neck and, withdrawing his sword from my body, gave me the final death-blow through the neck which is supposed to sever the jugular vein, but in this instance the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena. In the darkness which had now fallen none could tell but that he had really finished me. I whispered to him to go and claim his freedom, and then look for me in the hills east of the city, and so he left me. When the amphitheater had cleared I crept stealthily to the top, and as the great excavation lay far from the plaza and in an untenanted portion of the great dead city I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. CHAPTER Twenty in the Atmosphere Factory. For two days I waited there for Kantos Khan, 
but as he did not come I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction, toward a point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of this priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbling through the nights guided only by the stars and hiding during the days, behind some protruding rock or among the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts, strange, uncouth monstrosities that leaped upon me in the dark, so that I had ever to grasp my long-sword in my hand that I might be ready for them. Usually my strange, newly acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time. But once I was down with vicious fangs at my jugular and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew that I was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me I did not know, but that it was large and heavy and many-legged I could feel. My hands were at its throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves in my neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers, vice-like, upon its windpipe. Without a sound we lay there, the beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs, and I straining to maintain my grip and choke the life from it as I kept it from my throat. Slowly my arms gave to the unequal struggle, and inch by inch the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept toward me, until, as the hairy face touched mine again, I realized that all was over. And then a living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness full upon the creature that held me pinioned to the ground. The two rolled growling upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner. But it was soon over, and my preserver stood with lowered head above the throat of the dead thing which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomian scene, showed me that my preserver was Woola, but from whence he had come or how found me I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship it is needless to say but my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety as to the reason of his leaving Dejah Thoris. Only her death, I felt sure, could account for his absence from her, so faithful I knew him to be to my commands. By the light of the now brilliant moons I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet, I realized that the poor fellow was more than half starved. I myself was in but little better plight, but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh, and I had no means of making a fire. When Woola had finished his meal, I again took up my weary and seemingly endless wandering in quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak of the fifteenth day of my search I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. At about noon I dragged myself wearily to the portals of a huge building, which covered perhaps four square miles and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls other than the tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. 
I could find no bell or other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small round hole in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was of about the bigness of a lead pencil, and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking-tube, I put my mouth to it, and was about to call into it, when a voice issued from it, asking me whom I might be, where from, and the nature of my errand. I explained that I had escaped from the Warhoons, and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. "'You wear the medal of a green warrior, and are followed by a calot. Yet you are of the figure of a red man. In color you are neither green nor red. In the name of the ninth day, what manner of creature are you?' "'I am a friend of the red men of Barsoom, and I am starving. In the name of humanity, open to us,' I replied. Presently the door commenced to recede before me, until it had sunk into the wall fifty feet. Then it stopped and slid easily to the left, exposing a short, narrow corridor of concrete, at the further end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight, yet immediately we passed the first door it slid gently into place behind us and receded rapidly to its original position in the front wall of the building. As the door had slipped aside, I had noticed its great thickness, fully twenty feet, and as it reached its place once more after closing behind us, great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it, and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk in the floor. A second and third door receded before me, and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached a large inner chamber where I found food and drink set out upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my calot, and while I was thus engaged my invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination. "'Your statements are most remarkable,' said the voice, on concluding its questioning. "'But you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not of Barsoom. I can tell that by the conformation of your brain, and the strange location of your internal organs, and the shape and size of your heart. "'Can you see through me?' I exclaimed. "'Yes, I can see all but your thoughts, and were you a Barsoomian I could read those.' Then a door opened at the far side of the chamber, and a strange, dried-up, little mummy of a man came toward me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment, a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner-plate set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter that scintillated nine different and distinct rays. The seven colors of our earthly prism and two beautiful rays which to me were new and nameless. I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought while he could not fathom an iota from my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, 
and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power. For the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone on my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three-quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically, or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it and the result is then pumped to the five principal air centers of the planet where as it is released contact with the ether of space transforms it into atmosphere there is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present martian atmosphere for a thousand years and the only fear as my new friend told me was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps, any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all Mars with the atmosphere compound. For eight hundred years, he told me, he had watched these pumps which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over twenty-four and one-half earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him. Half a Martian year, about three hundred and forty-four of our days, each of these men spend alone in this huge, isolated plant. Every red Martian is taught during the earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere, but only two at one time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building which, built as it was with walls a hundred and fifty feet thick, is absolutely unassailable, even the roof being guarded from assault by aircraft by a glass covering five feet thick. The only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man, as all Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life on Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched his thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by the action of a certain combination of thought-waves. To experiment with my new-found toy, I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination and so I asked him in a casual manner how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash there leaped to his mind nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that this was a secret he must not divulge. From then on his manner toward me changed, as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging his great secret and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night, he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer 
who would help me on my way to Zodanga, which he said was the nearest Martian city. But be sure that you do not let them know you are bound for Helium, as they are at war with that country. My assistant and I are of no country. We belong to all Barsoom, and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands, even among the green men, though we do not trust ourselves to their lands if we can avoid it," he added. "'And so, good night, my friend,' he continued. "'May you have a long and restful sleep. Yes, a long sleep.' And though he smiled pleasantly, I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger, and the half-formed words, I am sorry, but it is for the best good of Barsoom. As he closed the door of my chamber behind him, his thoughts were cut off from me, as was the sight of him, which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought-transference. What was I to do? How could I escape through these mighty walls? Easily could I kill him now that I was warned, but once he was dead I could no more escape, and with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant I should die with all the other inhabitants of the planet, all, even Dejah Thoris, were she not already dead. For the others I did not give the snap of my finger but the thought of Dejah Thoris drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously I opened the door of my apartment, and, followed by Woola, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme had come to me. I would attempt to force the great locks by the nine thought-waves I had read in my host's mind creeping stealthily through corridor after corridor and down winding runways which turned hither and thither, I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast that morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows of a recess in the corridor. Dragging Woola after me, I crouched low in the darkness. Presently the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I had been about to pass through, I saw that he held a long thin dagger in his hand and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then return to my bedchamber and finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump-room, I stole stealthily from my hiding-place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive lock, I hurled the nine thought-waves against it. In breathless expectancy I waited, when finally the great door moved softly toward me and slid quietly to one side. One after the other the remaining mighty portals opened at my command, and Woola and I stepped forth into the darkness, free but little better off than we had been before, other than that we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile, I made for the first crossroad, 
intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning, and, entering the first enclosure I came to, I searched for some evidences of a habitation. There were low, rambling buildings of concrete, barred with heavy, impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hallowing brought any response. Weary and exhausted from sleeplessness, I threw myself upon the ground, commanding Woola to stand guard. Some time later I was awakened by his frightful growlings, and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us and covering me with their rifles. "'I am unarmed and no enemy,' I hastened to explain. "'I have been a prisoner among the green men, and am on my way to Zodanga. All I ask is food and rest for myself and my calot, and the proper directions for reaching my destination.' They lowered their rifles and advanced pleasantly toward me, placing their right hands upon my left shoulder, after the manner of their custom of salute, and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings. They then took me to the house of one of them, which was only a short distance away. The buildings I had been hammering at in the early morning were occupied only by stock and farm produce. The house proper, standing among a grove of enormous trees, and, like all red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft, which slid up or down within a sleeve sunk in the ground, and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwellings, the Red Martians simply run them up out of harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without, if they wish to go away and leave them. These brothers, with their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors, and confirmed bachelors, who were too poor to pay the high celibate tax which all red Martian governments impose. They were the personification of cordiality and hospitality, and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experiences. When they had heard my story, I omitted all reference to Dejah Thoris and the old man of the atmosphere plant. They advised me to color my body to more resemble their own race, and then attempt to find employment in Zodanga, either in the army or the navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until after you have proven your trustworthiness and have won friends among the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service, as we are a warlike people on Barsoom, explained one of them, and save our richest favors for the fighting man. When I was ready to depart, they furnished me with a small domestic bull thoat, such as is used for saddle purposes by all red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of his huge and fierce cousin of the wilds. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil with which I anointed my entire body, and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long, in the prevailing fashion of the time, square at the back and banged in the front, 
so that I could have passed anywhere upon Barsoom as a full-fledged red Martian. My medal and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodangan gentleman, attached to the house of Pator, which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodangan money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from our own, except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it, and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays his creditors in full, and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in mines, which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody, except the debtor, as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficient voluntary labor to work the great isolated farmlands of Mars, stretching, as they do, like narrow ribbons from pole to pole, through wild stretches peopled by wild animals and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me, they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Barsoom and bidding me farewell, they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. End of chapter 20